Hi, everybody. This is Scott Saad for The Sad Truth, another fantastic guest today. The second, I believe, classicist, the first one, tough shoes to follow, Victor Davis Hansen. Today, we have a younger version of Victor Davis Hansen, but <laughs> as charming and as knowledgeable, Spencer Clavin. How are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I would uh, be only too honored to follow in Dr. Hansen's <laughs> those, those are big shoes to fill. Okay, sure let me enough. just very briefly uh, mention a few highlights from your bio. PhD from Oxford University in ancient Greek literature. That itself, we could spend the whole hour talking about the ancient world and so on. Uh, editor at the Claremont Institute, author of Music in Ancient Greece, Melody, Rhythm, and Life. That itself could be a great topic for a conversation. <laughs> and your most recent book, just out February 14th, uh, via Regnery, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Did I cover the main points? Do you want to add anything to that bio? That's uh, plenty to be getting on with uh, to start with. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's great. <laughs> okay, so let's start with uh, probably a question that you've been asked many times. So there are five crises, crisis of meaning, crisis of reality, religion, uh, regime, uh, body. Uh, why did you pick these five crises as opposed to other ones? What are some ones that you might have considered that you left out? So in, in psychology, we talk about a factor analysis, right? You take a whole bunch of variables and then you distill them to a fewer set that still captures the phenomenon. So there are many more crises in these five. Why these five in particular? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think that's actually one major advantage of the texts of the Western canon is they help us to do that very kind of analysis. Take all these different data points. What are some fundamental underlying questions? And maybe I'll start then by saying what I mean by the word crisis, because uh, that can help us. To, to figure that out. I mean, it, it's a Greek word. We hear this in the news all the time, of course, you know, that we have a crisis in the supply chain, we have a COVID crisis, we have any number of crises that we sort of wake up every day and are confronted with. But when I use the word, I'm referring back to this Greek idea. It's from a verb, uh, krino in ancient Greek, which means to judge or to make a decision. And so a crisis is a deciding point. It's a time for choosing. Um, and and th th these kinds of crises really are you know, conflicts between two fundamentally irreconcilable ways of looking at the world. You have to go this way or you have to go that way. And one of the things that reading old books, I think, can do is help us find out which of those crises, these problems have been around forever. They're kind of baked in to the cake of living as a human being on, on earth. And so that was how I proceeded as I thought, you know, what are the big questions facing us? Which are the ones that can uh, you, where we can find guidance from from the tradition and from the ancient texts. And the first one, which I began with because it's kind of the first thing you have to ask in order to proceed at all, is the crisis of reality. Is there such a thing as absolute truth or not? Um, are we all kind of just talking around your truth and my truth, or can we together progress toward some actual truth? Um, the next part of this is actually kind of the flip side of that and kind of leads on from the crisis of reality. Well, if there is truth and if that truth exists in some kind of cognitive space or if we can know it in our in our minds, um, what's the point of all the rest of us? Why do we have these bodies that we're kind of, it might feel saddled with? Um, and this incorporates, I think, a lot of anxieties that people are up against uh, it right now in, in a lot of different contexts. The, the transgender phenomenon, I mean, you and I have tweeted back and forth a little bit about all this non-binary stuff. I think a lot of this is kind of, this speaks to this uh, anxiety about the relationship between body and soul or body and consciousness. Um, 
this leads on into the kind of these two sections, the crisis of meaning and the crisis of religion. Um, and both of them are about whether in an age of science and digital technology, we can really believe in anything beyond the material world, beyond the brute fact of, of matter. I argue that we can, that we should. Um, but I do think that those are kind of two different ways of looking at the world that are on the table. Um, and finally, as you know, all of this is kind of, uh, to me, very fun to talk about, illuminating to talk about, but it does kind of, the rubber does have to meet the road at a certain point. And so that's the fifth, the fifth crisis, the crisis of the regime, which is how do we think about America as a, a nation of the West, as a product of the Western tradition? Um, why does everything seem to be going so wrong in America so much of the time? And are there things that we can do to fix it that we can think you know we can look to the tradition to, to understand that what's what's america really supposed to be um you know there are as you say there are a million different ways that you could frame these slightly differently um you know one one thing that that i thought you know might bear a little bit more discussion and maybe we can talk about this more is kind of the, the role of art art does come up in the book, in the crisis of, of meaning section, but we're having this big culture war as as well, and and I think that 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 almost would merit its own book. You know, what what is art doing to us? What is? Uh, but there's you know, as you say, the the kind of analysis that you have to do when you sit down to write a book like this is you know, what are the most kind of um, simple and clear distillations of the of the questions, and that's why I wrote it the way I did. Oh, very, very nice summary. Uh, I I jotted down some uh, a few quotes or a few stuff from my from my own work. This is from my book, Parasitic Mind, page seventy. The section is titled. So, it's speaking of your first crisis, the crisis uh, of reality, my section is titled "Freedom from Reality." And what I'm arguing in that section is that so in in my book, I talk about uh, the, the human. You know, the West is being parasitized by a set of idea pathogens, right? And then right. I discuss all of these different idea pathogens. And I argue that the granddaddy of all idea pathogens is postmodernism, precisely because it removes the possibility that there's even an epistemology of truth, right? I I can't even get to a truth. It's all relative, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So certainly we could talk about that. But I just want to read you a quote that I think would resonate so well with some of the stuff that you're talking about. So this is from page 70 in my book. So many idea pathogens share one common thread, a deep desire to liberate people from the shackles of reality. Take, for example, the blank slate premise of the human mind. It posits that humans are born void of any evolved biological blueprints and innate individual differences. Our eventual life trajectories are thought to be fully shaped by distinct environments to which we've been exposed. This is a hopeful but delusional belief, right? So... So I would love to know that my son is is has as much of a chance to be the next Lionel Messi, the next Michael Jordan, the next Albert Einstein, and maybe he can. But we also have to recognize that probably not all of us were born with equal potentiality on a blank slate. So, but it's but freeing me from the shackles of that otherwise nasty reality is a hopeful message as a parent. And so what I argue is that each of these idea pathogens, cultural relativism. Uh, radical feminism, social constructivism, biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human affairs, of course, postmodernism. What they all start off with is this, this, with this noble goal 
And then in the pursuit of that noble goal, I have to reject reality because otherwise I can't complete that noble pursuit. And therefore mm-hmm. it takes on, to use in ethical terms that you would appreciate, it take, the, the pursuit of truth takes on a consequentialist bent rather than the, a deontological bent, right? So I mm-hmm. always argue that uh, I could chew gum and you know walk and chew gum at the same time. I could be for transgender rights, whatever that means, without supporting that, yes, boys too can menstruate and 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 men too can bear children. So right. what are your thoughts on all that? Well, uh, that's why I, mean, I love this idea of the of the parasite. And actually, I have the parasitic mind here in my office. I should have brought it over to, oh, great. Uh, to read with you. So no, that, I think I think, you know, one of the things that parasites do, uh, if I can put it this way, is they kind of hollow out the host and wear it as a skin suit, right? They, they yeah. get the names even of appealing things like diversity uh, or you know inclusion um, applied to these weird kind of zombie perversions of those ideas. And so people are attracted to the offer. Yeah, I would love to be able to backflip and dunk on a 12-foot basketball net. I, I can't, uh, but it's it, yeah, it's kind of attractive to suggest that maybe there's some way in which simply by thinking about that, I can make it so. Um, and I talk in the book about virtual reality as one such promise, the promise to liberate the not only the body, but the mind from the constraints of hard and fact truth and reality. One of the advertisements for one of Facebook's many sort of meta programs um, has the line, you know, a never changing, uh, ever new world beyond your world is waiting. And this does, I mean, we, as, as, you know, what I would say as embodied souls, you know, as, as people who yearn beyond the limits that we have and are always striving to push up against them, um, this idea can be very attractive. Um, one of the things that we learn from studying ancient history is it's a very old promise. I mean, Socrates, the uh, famous kind of forefather of of Greek philosophy, um, comes of age in a community in an era when it's very fashionable, as it sort of is now, to say, oh, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The kind of ancient Greek version of this is Heraclitus, all all is in flux. Um, And one trend that I see is these these offers a, a kind of way of identifying, if you like, these these parasitic versions of the ideas is that they come with kind of maximalist offers about what they can do. Liberation is 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 the one that comes with the you know anti-reality idea. We can be set free from these chains, um, and they repeatedly deliver almost the opposite: a kind of imprisonment, a kind of um, you know just one feels locked in in this infinite you know choice, the kind of, if if anything can be true, then how do I even decide what is true? And the answer ultimately ends up being power by the assertion of force, the assertion of will uh, through Zimachus and Plato's Republic says, you know, justice is nothing other than the interest of the stronger. And Athens discovered this. We, I think, are are discovering this. Um, So, you know, repeatedly in the book, I sort of invite people to examine the ability of these, uh, you know, sort of parasite ideologies or or these, uh, you know, sort of false perversions of of the truth to examine their ability to deliver on on promises because that's a pretty good diagnostic test i think for whether you're dealing with the real article or not indeed uh now of course i mean you're a classicist so it, it would only make sense that you would try to offer as you write in the subtitle ancient wisdoms to current crises let me couch what you did in the context of some of my own work so i'm mm. i'm an evolutionary behavioral scientist and so you know i study the you know the invariant elements of human nature 
And one tool that I use to achieve that, which I think will resonate nicely with with a, with that of a classicist uh, or the pursuits of a classicist is something that I call cultural products as fossils of the human mind. And so what I argue basically is that, you know, a paleontologist, if he wants to study the phylogenetic history of a species, the, the currency that he will use is fossil remains or skeletal remains. And, and, and the paleontologist will be able to make very, very precise statements about whether that animal was a herbivore or an omnivore or a, a carnivore, their mating strategies for species that have been extinct for 65 plus million years. Uh, now, the human mind is organic, therefore it doesn't fossilize. But what I argue is that the products that human minds leave behind do mm -hmm. fossilize. And therefore, I can study an ancient Greek poem, so to now to link it to classics. And even though that ancient Greek poet doesn't know what an iPhone is and doesn't know what a television is or a mm -hmm. plane is, the software that's running his brain is indistinguishable from your software and mine. And therefore, I understand when he feels sexual frustration and sibling rivalry and parent uh, mm. offspring uh, conflict and paternity uncertainty. So all of the key drivers of literature are universal themes precisely because they tap into a universal and invariant human nature. So that's uh, number one. So I, I love the idea. And also another thing that I love is uh, that, I don't know if you know the term, it was kind of re reintroduced into the common lexicon by E.O. Wilson, the Harvard biologist, consilience. Are you familiar with that term, Spencer? Uh, no, is? I'm not. No. Yeah, I think you, it. please read that book. It's a late 90s book. Consilience refers to unity of knowledge. So for example, mm. if I say, you know, physics is a more consilient field than sociology, it's not that physicists are smarter than sociologists, but it's that they 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 can organize their, their knowledge around a parsimonious tree of knowledge, whereas sociologists mm. can't even agree what's male or female. Well, there's a very quick bifurcation in the tree of knowledge, starting from the most basic question that you could ask. So consilience is how you can link the natural sciences to the social sciences, to the humanities, to classics. And so I love the idea of linking, you know, ancient wisdoms in modern realities. Of the many, many ancient wisdoms and by the way, I, I'll cede the floor to you in a second. So thank you for your mm. patience. But of I'm just not. trying to set it up. Uh, yeah. uh, when I was writing, my forthcoming book is a is titled "The Sad The Sad S A A D Truth About Happiness: Eight Secrets right. uh, for Leading the Good Life." And of course, no one has written about the good life more than the ancient Greeks. And mm. as I was writing the book, you know, I would immerse myself in you know Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius. At first, I would think, "Oh, I just came up with this brilliant new insight." And then I would get to Epictetus. I go, "God damn, what an asshole! He beat me to it two thousand years ago." And I quickly realized that almost, you know, all of the things that I thought were insightful and unique to me having just came up with them, they had already said it. And then it reminded me of a story of Nassim. Do you know who Nassim Taleb is? No, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's a, he's a good friend of mine, fellow Lebanese, who once joked with me. I, I hope he was just uh, ribbing on me. He said, I really don't know what you psychologists study because anything to study that, that has to be said about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already said it. And as I was writing my book, I said, you know what? I think he might be right. <laughs> of course, it's a, it's a slight overstatement. We, we have come up with new things since the ancient Greeks. But so... I don't know if I have an exact question. What explains the Greek miracle and what explains mm. why Spencer Clavin needs to go back to their wisdom to explain current lunacy? 
Yeah, no, I love that that feeling. Of, I I have felt that exact feeling of frustration. Like it's so, these guys are so annoying. It's like they they preempt you on everything. And even this idea of consilience, which I absolutely am going to go away and and read this book. But I I think you could develop that idea right out of Aristotle's uh, posterior and prior analytics, where he sort of lays out the rules of of thought. That you know, basically, it's like a nesting doll theory of of thought to a certain extent. Um, and and so you know, we could we could almost certainly sit down with those two books and uh, you know draw draw the lines between them um this idea about the fossilization of human knowledge i think this is so true that it's even built into the structure of how language works i mean we are sitting here today conversing in a language english which has literal not literal but sedimentary layers of successive you know eras of development you have kind of a germanic anglo-saxon sub uh, monosyllabic or simplistic layer then you've got kind of french and latinate words layered over on top of that and then a later system of development all of these records of history live in even just the patterns of our thought because those are shaped also by the words that are available to us um once you understand this, one thing I think you learn is that even the criticisms that kind of postmodernists uh, levy at the tradition, at the past, even those criticisms are in some sense parasitic on the the tradition and the history that that we stand upon. So a classic example of this would be America is fundamentally foundationally evil because the founders held slaves. Well, who taught you that? In fact, it's fundamentally wrong to own another person as property. That idea comes from somewhere. It comes from the notion that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, certain inalienable rights. Um, one very illuminating thing about studying the past is you learn that not everybody everywhere has always thought that. That's not something that just drops ready-made out of the sky. You know, these are ideas that come to us with a long history of of struggle and uh analysis discussion people had to die for for many of them um and and so that in itself is i think a council of humility much like the experience of coming to epictetus or to aristotle and and discovering that you know these guys have kind of thought of everything um you know one way of accounting for this Greek miracle, and it, it is a miracle, I, I think the 5th century BC in Athens is a miraculous period. There have been others, but this this was one of them. Um, and and it, if you really get down to it, the amount of time in which it takes place is so vanishingly small. You know, this period after the, the Persian War, the kind of victory over this vast invading empire, um, before the Peloponnesian War, which is sort of the dissolution of this uh, sort of alliance, loose alliance of city-states. Um, you have this cultural flowering that lasts a couple generations, if that. And in that space, you get Socrates, Aeschylus, the, you know, Euripides, these tragedians, artists, poets, uh, statesmen, Pericles. Um, you could just name off. And of course, there's then a tradition that develops on after that. But something happens. There's an explosion, a big bang. Um, and one idea, one concept that I would propose as maybe a key to this, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different elements. There's, there's, there's freedom, there's political freedom, which the Greeks themselves said, this is what uh, enabled us to beat the Persians back was that we were fighting. They were fighting uh, out of necessity because they were being, you know, basically charged along by whips as, as slaves of their master. And, and, and we, were you know fighting for our homeland for our liberty um there's some truth to that there's also some propaganda and some some jingoism in it um i would suggest this idea of man as microcosm 
um, which comes up in, in, in my book, but is really fundamental also to the way the Renaissance thinkers understand the Greeks when they start to recover them. Um, a cosmos in Greek is the whole of the universe, all of creation, everything that is. Um, and then the microcosmos is the little universe. Um, and the notion that the human mind is a, a little fractaline miniature of all of the universe enables you to propose that the structures in our minds are isomorphic with the structures in the world. And this is really everything. I mean, it makes things like math work, you know, the fact that we have concepts in our brain like two that apply to an actual thing in the world that is two. Uh, these, these are, you know, really astounding insights. Um, and they're everywhere in in Greek thought. They're in the they're in the politics of, you know, of say uh, Plato, and he's talking about what is justice. He talks about it at the city level in a kind of interrelational sense. And then also in the in, in, in individual level in the personal soul. Um, the man is the microcosm, which is still something that we kind of almost take for granted, or or we do if we engage in any kind of rational discussion and, and debate. I would imagine that you'll have things to say about this from a you know from a clinical from a, from a scientific perspective. Um, but I think that grasping that notion and proceeding, you know, relying on it for new discoveries, um, it, it might be why they figured out just so much because you can really get a lot of the kind of core insights out of just the world even if you don't have say a telescope you can get a lot of the core insights out of this this one idea of the logos man man's reason as the microcosm of the world beautiful uh a qu quick humorous story and then uh, mm -hmm. i want to get into who might which of the many great figures might be your favorite and why? Uh, and again, you're a classicist, so I want to pick your brain on these kinds of things. Uh, I was recently asked, actually, who my favorite was of the Stoics, and I offered an answer, and you, I'll, I'll repeat it here, and you'll tell me if, uh, if I'm on the right track. Uh, I was backpacking after my MBA uh, with a friend of mine. This was in 1990, and uh, the, the, the tail end of the trip was... Uh, hopping islands in the well in the greek islands and on one of the islands uh we just met met up with a guy who had lived in i think new york city a, a greek gentleman who lived in new york city for a while and uh i was joking with him i said you know what is it with you greeks we don't we don't hear of you much in the news at the time they hadn't yet won the 2004 european cup of nations in soccer there mm -hmm. wasn't the greek financial crisis so you really never heard of greece yeah. maybe yeah. some uh, some uh you know little battles with turkey over in cyprus but you know and so he kind of paused and he goes we came up with socrates plato <laughs> and aristotle we don't have to do anything beyond that and i thought you know we can what? take the I, rest of the day off yeah I th exactly i thought you know what i think you're you're pretty much right you could literally do nothing else forevermore and you're probably leading in the score you win the tournament uh i mean that's yeah. how incredible that greek tradition is okay so let me now turn the question to you uh hmm. i've often played the game you know if you can bring 10 historical figures to a dinner party who would they be and why hmm. let's no. bring it further down to just the great Greeks and anybody you want of any kind, who who would it be and why? It could be for their personality, it could be for their satire, for their brilliance. Give it to me. Well, uh, first of all, are, are you familiar with the painting "The School of Athens" by by the great painter Raphael? Uh, so that's that the one, the the famous painting where they're all standing around, and there's. Yes. Uh, I think I've probably used that teaser image in in one of my sad truth clips. Uh, so right. yes, I am familiar with it. Great. Okay. Well, that to me is the 
picture, the kind of still frame of the dinner party as it would be if I had to organize it. I mean, you have this beautiful, I mean, and it, it expresses something extremely important about the kinds of conversations that we're having here, which is that, you know, to be immersed in a tradition, in, in the tradition of the West, is to be surrounded by friends and to know that you're not alone. That these things, I mean, one of the things that strikes me as so tragic about the sort of postmodern rejection of Western Civ, just the, you know, the the slander that gets hurled at some of these authors, um, is, is how bereft it leaves people, how alone in an era that is extremely confusing and, and, and seriously in need of this kind of, um, the kind of thought that we're talking about that gathers things together. Together, um, that that distills things into you know particular questions. Um, so you know that that image kind of sums it up for me. Um, but at the center of it is a kind of a question that Raphael poses for us, because you've got Plato and Aristotle in in the middle of that corridor, and they're talking together. And Plato is pointing upward at the heavens and Aristotle has his hand. He's sort of younger, you know, was the disciple of, of Plato in some ways, um, but also you took issue with him on a lot of a lot of major questions. Aristotle's got his hand outstretched over the ground. And what this symbolizes is the idea that Plato was a kind of, you know, allegorist that he told these stories, um, which, as he himself says through the mouth of Socrates, you know, these these are kind of uh, half glimpses of a truth beyond the senses that you could never really capture what I'm sort of gesturing at. Um, this was an enormously frustrating to Aristotle. It was sort of like, you know, what what the hell are you talking about? Let's get down to the facts, Jack. Um, and and that's why his hand is on the ground. I mean, he was a, a minute observer of everything from, you know, the, the kind of uh, breathing patterns of certain uh, amphibians all the way up to the relationship between the body and the soul. And, and he wanted specificity of, of all. Um, my mind is with Aristotle. I find in Aristotle a uh, kind of clarity that is almost unparalleled, uh, or certainly you know up there in the top five. My heart is with Plato. I, I've you know, I, I, I my father is a storyteller. Uh, he's a novelist. Um, he and I have often been on hikes together and felt as if we were in the same gestures, postures as as Plato and and Aristotle, because he has this kind of soulful vision of, of the world. I have this kind of uh, scholarly insistence on these, you know, minutia. Um, and I think you need I, I think you need both. I think it would be great to have them have them both for our era. If I were going to bring somebody back now, it would be Aristotle just because of his um, his clarity about the things beyond the physical Realm. It's it's it, you know in Aristotle you can almost feel as if metaphysical speculations are not matters of kind of fantasy but rather you know concrete facts about about the world and uh, that's that's what I love about him. Beautiful. So uh, two two quick points uh, in the in the next book, the sad truth about happiness. I have a whole chapter on. Uh, the inverted, what I call it the inverted you, which you know, too little of something not good, too much of something not good, somewhere in the middle. Which of course Aristotle. It was the golden mean, right? Uh, the the yep. soldier who is reckless is a useless martyr. The soldier who is a coward is is also useless. Somewhere in between, there's the right temperance. And what I argue in the book uh, is that that inverted you is is arguably the most universal law in nature. And I demonstrated through many units of analysis. So at the neuronal level within your brain, how your brain reacts to certain dosage of drugs, uh, how how much intensity you should exercise in. Uh, it, it, it's true at the economic level, at the political level. So that inverted you, everything in moderation, 
not only the ancient Greeks came to that realization, many other cultures also came with it. The, the Buddhists also came up with it. Confucius came up with it. But nonetheless, Aristotle is known for that. So I certainly would be tipping my hat to him as, as you did. The other thing that you mentioned is the fact that he was a polymath, an interdisciplinarian uh, who, you know, who, who studied things that are completely different. I'm uniquely attracted to that in part because of the, the word that we discussed earlier, consilience. My mind works in a synthetic way. I'm not a stay in your lane professor. I want to <laughs> talk to the classicist. I want to talk to the, uh, uh, the physicist. I, you know, I, what, what, what tickles my fancy is to go on surprising intellectual journeys. And if I'm only staying in my lane, then I'm not getting the, 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 the intellectual hedonistic dopamine hit that I'm looking for. <laughs> and so I'm attracted to interdisciplinaries, and certainly Aristotle would be that. But when I was asked of the Stoics, which one I like the best, uh, I answered it in, in the following way. So I thought, okay, well, I, I could pick many. I, Epictetus is, I mean, there's many of them, you know. So I picked Marcus Aurelius because mm. I love the idea that here was this emperor. So mm. he's a busy guy. He's doing emperor <laughs> emperor things. Oh, yeah. He's got and a yet, lot on his plate. He's got a lot on his plate. He, he, he's got a schedule to keep. And yet he's <laughs> getting annoyed because he'd like to have some time off to be able to think. And I said, you know what? That's who I want to be modeled. I want to model. I want to be an emperor, but who's pissed off because I don't have enough time to read. He's my guy. No, Am I that. on the right track here? Is, is that something to be admired? Oh, that that's beautiful. I mean, so I I just wrote the foreword to a new collection of the oh, Stoics. Oh, this um, one right here. Oh, uh, yeah, I know that book. Yes, the I gateway just to the got Stoics. this Where from. I just, Regnery just sent me this. Yes, go ahead. Fantastic. Well, um, this is I I spent some time in that essay in the foreword on Aurelius, um, because the most touching thing to me about uh, the Meditations, his his famous book. Is, is its Greek title, which is Ta Ace Hauton. And in Greek, that means notes to himself, things that he says to himself. And it's extraordinarily rare. I mean, Winston Churchill might be somebody that we could compare uh, Aurelius to in this way. It's, I think, extraordinarily rare to get this little private window, this fly on the wall uh, entry into the the truly unfiltered self-talk, you might say, of somebody in the position that Aurelius was in, the ruler of, of the world for all intents and purposes. Um, he didn't expect, it was not an expected thing that he would take the throne. And so in that way, you know, he was kind of torn from his books. He he had these sort of two mistresses is how he talks about it, his, you know, the, the politics and then the library. And it was the library that he clearly longed for, clearly loved, and yet understood that history had provided him with the duty and as a good Stoic knew that it was up to him to fill that role, that it wasn't actually within his power to change it, uh, that fighting against it would be somehow unmanly and and, and certainly unethical, um, you know, immoral. Um, and so these kind of mutterings almost that we get in in that book, I mean, it's not a um, comprehensive or, or you know, uh, it's not an integrated treatise of philosophy in the way that some of the other Greek texts that come down to us. There are um, you sort of open-minded considerations of various issues, like whether it's whether there is divine providence or whether the whole universe is just sort of made out of atoms randomly colliding. Um, but it, it's it's magnificent, yeah. The the um, the polymathic tendencies of of the book, and of course, this was an era 
Aristotle, as you say, another great example, this was an era when at least it seemed more possible to have a kind of ranging grasp of, of all knowledge. I don't know if you're familiar at all with the philosopher Owen Barfield. He was sort of one so. of the... Okay, well, um, he's somebody I might... Since you've given me a, an yeah, excellent please. addition to my reading list, let me give to you um, the, the book Worlds Apart by Owen Barfield. Okay. Um, Barfield was one of the inklings. So Lewis, Tolkien, these kind of uh, dons and professors um, during the period of the Great Wars um, come out with Narnia and with uh, The Lord of the Rings. But uh, Barfield is, is, is a much less kind of skillful writer than Tolkien or, or Lewis. And so it's he's less known. Um, but he has this beautiful set of books, Poetic Diction, um, Saving the Appearances, and then Worlds Apart, which is the title refers exactly to this uh, just siloing off of the disciplines, yeah. this idea that, and now with all of our kind of political uh, expert worship, when people say trust the experts, they're kind of making reference to this idea that somebody like you could never understand classics and somebody like me could never grasp what you're on about with, you know, uh, with with neuroscience and, and, and with psychology. Um, and I think one of the things that we both try to do is to to challenge that assumption. I mean, of course, one's going to have a field of, of specialty as a as an academic. Um, of course, there's going to be stuff that I don't know that I can learn from you and, and delight to learn from you. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like we're mutually unintelligible to one another. And and if truth has any meaning at all, it's a, it means that the things you're saying should be should make sense to me. I should be able to kind of grasp and wrestle with them, go away, consider them, come back, decide. Um, and I think this kind of it, it's actually really poisonous to to separate people off into these airtight yeah. disciplines um, and and just tell them that that's the only area that they can know anything for certain. And in every other domain, they have no right to speak, if you see what I mean. And it's so funny because in so I'm you know, I've been an academic now for almost 30 years. Every right. single university in their mission statement puts uh, you know, some some throwaway line to we support interdisciplinarity. But the second that you try to do something truly interdisciplinarian, then every single dean re reverts to being very ter territorial about their discipline. And okay. so uh, I may give you a, a great example. So as, as an evolutionist, I was very keen on replicating a a uh, a program that was originally instituted uh, first in the United States by a evolutionary biologist named David Sloan Wilson. He actually writes a book, given some of your interest in on religion, he writes a book called Darwin's Cathedral, uh, mm -hmm. where he argues that uh, uh, groups that are religious tend to outsurvive groups that are not religious. So he offers a group selectionist argument for why religiosity would have been selected. So that certainly is, is an evolutionary argument for religiosity. But in any case, what David Sloan Wilson had done at uh, uh, SUNY Binghamton uh, is create what was called, uh, I think it's still called the EVOS program, Evolutionary Studies program, whereby students, irrespective of which major they were coming from, would get a minor in evolutionary studies precisely mm -hmm. because you can apply the evolutionary lens to study human behavior. You can apply it to study uh, classics. You could apply it in medicine. You could apply it in mate preferences, in right. literature, in art. Uh, anywhere where there are biological agents, it is certainly within the purview of evolutionary analysis. So I said, okay, well, let me be the, the guy who, who sets up 
a similar program first in Canada. There would be this great first mover advantage to being the first Canadian university to have it. And mm -hmm. as soon as I tried to go to each of the faculty deans to pitch that idea, they were like, no, there, no way. Yeah. No way no. And so that was so frustrating to me because it was so inauthentic and disingenuous. Here it is in your mission statement. You want to support big, broad, uh, interdisciplinary. And then when someone tries to do it, you shut them down. Any right, thoughts right. on that? It's like, well, it's like, you know, silly you. You thought they meant what they said, right? I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. kind of how. Uh, and I, this, this happens all the time. Another area, I think, where this is really true is a lot of academics complain and complain that nobody reads their work, that nobody's paying attention to their work, that, you know, people, pundits get out and they say things. And it's like, if only they had read my book on hylomorphism or or whatever. Um, and And they also kind of, you know, complain about impact. They sort of wish that there were some impact, citational impact to their work. Um, in order to do that, in order to speak across disciplines, in order to speak to people who are not professionally trained in, yes. in your in your field, um, you have to do this consilience thing, right? You have yes. to kind of um, drill down, hone down. Um, everybody knows and understands that when you do that, there will be exceptions, edge cases that you've left out, generalizations you've made that don't cover every possible instance. Um, and since it's the academic's job to consider, you know, those those various possibilities, um, your fellow, your colleagues, those in your discipline will be able to see the kinds of choices you've made, the sorts of things you've excluded. I mean, in this book, right, I mean, I have done my my best in, in How to Save the West to offer people a true account of the ancient philosophies and the traditional ideas for kind of dealing with this. But of course, there are there are people that aren't in the bibliography that could be. There are, uh, you know, ideas that I cite that I don't cite that I could. Um, <laughs> the kind of um, bitterness and and frustration you will encounter from your fellow academics when you do this, when you actually try to speak to people in a way that doesn't bog them down with every possible case, but actually, you know, gets gets at the heart of things. Um, just absolute, you know, backbiting and just the terror of the reviews that I've read for people who are, you know, elegant. I mean, C.S. Lewis is actually a great example of this. He was a great popularizer. He his his books are kind of like iceberg tips. You read them. And if you if you've read the kind of he was a classicist like like me. And so if you've, if you've read the stuff that he's read, you can see this big iceberg under the surface of all the stuff that he's kind of distilling into this point. Um, but, you know, he was basically just given the cold shoulder in, in the academy for a long time um, until his after his death. Now, if you go to Modeling College, which was one of his, you know, sort of home institutions, um, there's, a, there's a pamphlet right in the front door about C.S. Lewis went here and all the tourists should go, you know, because it brings in all this, you know, this money and this interest. Um, but in fact, you know, people talk as if they want this. But really, there's a there's a lot of hostility um, out of, I think, a certain sense of of pride and and just, you know, a protectiveness over over one's expertise. There's a lot of hostility to popularizing and to, to speaking in plain terms. So I'm going to uh, discuss a few quick anecdotes that speak exactly to what you're saying. Great. Because yeah, I am, a, a, if I may say, a perfect exemplar of that tension, because mm. I am a quote, even though I've published many, many, you know, very rigorous, serious top-rated academic peer-reviewed papers, but the fact that I'm also a popularizer, the fact that I get excited more by receiving mm -hmm. fan letters from uh, welders and corrections officers and soldiers more than I do from a, you know, uh, 
uh, highfalutin ivory tower professor that that is viewed as you know I'm a sellout right I'm not I'm not mm. a serious academic and the perfect example which I actually discuss in uh, the parasitic mind is a story that I, I hope some of the viewers who've who've heard it before won't be annoyed to hear it again but some of you may have not heard it so here it goes and certainly you I don't think you've heard it Spencer mm. uh, so I was at uh, Stanford in 2017 Stanford business school. So you might argue one of the big meccas of academia. And I was giving a talk about my, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology work uh, in the business school. And uh, the night before the gentleman who was, you know, officially my host, who was, uh, you know, a, a fellow uh, professor in the business school. Yep. Uh, at one point, he kind of turned to me and says, Oh, you know, I was doing some whatever Google searches. And, uh, you know, I didn't know you, you know, you'd been on, you know, you, on Joe Rogan so many times and so on. And you're <laughs> friends with Joe Rogan. I said, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm probably going to be going on again soon. He goes, Yeah, well, you know, at Stanford, you know, we don't condone that. I said, you don't condone what exactly? <laughs> Yep. He goes, well, you know, we don't do research so that it could be sexy so that we can appear on Joe Rogan. I said, well, I don't do that either, but I think I can do both. I can both publish in peer-reviewed papers and then go on Joe Rogan where 20 million people are going to listen to me. If I have something interesting to say, then boy, it would be exciting to have 20 million people listen to it rather than, and these are almost verbatim what I had said. I said, rather than publishing a paper that will be read by the editor to reviewers and my mom, right? And he didn't take well to that. Now, to your point about, you know, defensiveness, I think that's a perfectly explainable reaction, which is, I'm speaking as them now. I can't go on Joe Rogan and captivate the audience for three hours, but I've learned the template of how to write a peer-reviewed paper that will be read and cited by six people. Therefore, that's what's really important. And all of you sellouts who speak to, uh, you know, the great unwashed, like the plebs, the rubes, like Joe Rogan, well, you're sellouts, you're not really academics. And to your point about C.S. Lewis, I now get a lot of schools that call me and say, right. hey, how did you build your such a, you know, big platform? And, you know, well, listen, not in an egotistical manner, but when I walk down the street and I'm stopped as though I was, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, I think that demonstrates influence, right? It, right. It, uh, but to them, that's vulgar. To popularize, right. to vulgarize, as we say, is an ugly thing. Are we ever going to able to break through that uh, highfalutin thing, uh, Spencer? Well, it's interesting. In some ways, we may already be doing it without knowing because, you know, there are so many pathologies in the modern American academy that we may be living through. I, I, I don't like to make predictions in a kind of fist thumping way because I just genuinely think I don't know the future. But I wonder, we may be living through a sea change in where intellectual prestige lives. Um, we may look back on this as the moment when names like Stanford, Harvard, Yale stopped to carry quite the cultural cachet that they did because they squandered so much of, of the public's trust. Um, now, you know, from my mouth to God's ears, I know, you know, there's a long way to go. But, you know, th this is a, a moment when I'm seeing all of these institutions, the classic learning test, the ancient language institute. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing people building using digital tools, using this new technology, using the kind of stuff that we're using now, you know, sitting yeah. at our desks with our microphones. Um, and honestly, you know, uh, what you said 
about, uh, you know, getting notes from people that really speaks to me very, very profoundly. I, I had a podcast, Young Heretics, which ran for uh, a couple of years. Um, and I'm now I'm moving over now to the Daily Wire to do much the same thing. But that show itself has kind of run its course. And this book is in some ways a, a distillation of, of that uh, experience. And it's written, you know, it's almost dedicated to the audience of of that book or of that show. And and one of the first things that I heard uh, that I has just stuck in my mind, it's like a little emblem. I'm sitting on my tractor and I'm listening to you talk about Aristotle. Isn't that amazing? Oh my gosh. I thought it, it's like a, an electric spark on the other end of the line. And, and, and the thing about it is, you know, it's, he didn't even say, I don't think like, and, and now I'm going to go off and do this. Or, you know, I, I thought about this particular issue. It was just that like, I, I had sort of believed this in an abstract sense, that these guys are not there to furnish materials for PhD theses. PhDs are there to offer yeah. these people to the world. And, you know, they're there to tell you to to help you think through how to be excellent at being human. Um, and the first time I realized that people were going to listen to that and actually would consume that as sort a sort of spiritual food um, – it felt actually it kind of shifted my whole way of, of thinking about intellectual work altogether, because then you start to get notes from people. I'm sure you're well aware of this. Like you get notes from people that say, well, I heard you talking about this idea from Aquinas or whatever. And so then I made this decision in my yeah. work or in my relationship or whatever. And <laughs> I, I swear at first, the first reaction was, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know. I was just talking. I didn't know you were going to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and then you realized, okay, so this is an enormous responsibility. Yeah. And and that is why some of this postmodernist stuff that is sort of like, you know, it doesn't, there is no truth, whatever, these kind of word games, fun intellectual ideas. Um, the word that comes to mind again and again for that is just irresponsible. Like people yeah. are going to listen to you and they're going to go do things as a result of that. Um, that's the whole point. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, yeah, I don't know if this is going to change, but I, I certainly you know, um, I, I see hopeful signs that perhaps we are already in a kind of new era that people after us will look back on. Um, let me ask a question of you, if, if, if I may, you know, um, this question, when, whenever one sits down to, to write something or to say something, as as you know, and as we've been discussing, um, there's kind of a, a bunch of different registers you can you can write in. You can write in the academic register um, that basically tries to examine every possible angle on this this one question. Footnotes everything that's ever been written on it. Um, you can write in the op-ed form, which just drills it down to like 500 to 700 words, and you can do everything in between. There's kind of an infinite scale in between those two those two poles. Um, Sometimes I feel as if, and the, the mantra that comes back to me again, clear writing is clear thought. And sometimes I feel as if I've done kind of more and harder and even better intellectual work on the kind of uh, distilled popular version of the thing. Is is that your experience? As yeah, well? What's the role? Amazing yeah. question. I love it. So yeah. let me uh, go back in history and trying to answer that. So in 2008, hmm. I was invited to start a column uh, on psychology today, which at the time, I don't know if they're still as big. I haven't written for them for a while, but at the time they had a huge platform. You know, you you had complete editorial discretion. You know, nobody was looking at what you're going to write. Typical articles might be 750 to a thousand words. So in one afternoon, I could publish an article, you know, within six hours, you know, 20,000 people would have read it. And I 
jumped on that opportunity because at that time I was starting to think about, I'd like to write to the masses. I still want to be publishing, you know, academic papers and my first two books. So this book right here, the evolutionary basis of consumption and this one were academic books, but mm -hmm. then this one right here, the consuming instinct uh, is it is the first trade book I, I wrote. And so I thought, well, let me take a shot at writing for psychology today see if I've got the, I know that I could write for an academic audience. I've done it for many years, you know, the peer reviewed paper, but what if I, I don't have the ability? Now I, I thought maybe it was overconfidence that, you know, I'm, I'm a good raconteur. I'm a good storyteller. I think that I could write well for, but let me take a shot. Hmm. I yeah. did that and I found an audience. So that kind of gave me the confidence to say, you know, I can actually write a book that's meant for the, the masses. And, and that went well, and th this book did quite well. When it came to Parasitic Mind, one of the things that uh, someone told me that I, I think was very helpful, although I, I think I was aware of it, they said, well, try to write the book not as Professor Sad, but as that really interesting guy that we all listen to on Joe Rogan. Hmm. And I said, bingo, exactly. Hmm. So what I've tried to do both in The Parasitic Mind and in my next book, the, the Happiness book, is... It's a it's a real melange of yes there is some rigorous stuff there is here's the here's the neuroscience proof of that here is the Epictetus quote for that here's the right but it is always interwoven with a lot of great storytelling right personal storytelling mm -hmm. what's great about that Spencer as I, as I'm sure you know first of all the audience feels very attached to you right mm -hmm. okay you, you want me to tell you about mate choice well let me first tell you about how my wife and I met. Yeah. And how that, yeah. right? Well, now you got the person. So so to answer your question, and I hope not a too long-winded way, I think there's something very liberating when you write to a mass audience. Uh, I mean, yes, you could do it in the 1,000 word form, but I particularly love the, the trade books because mm. there is no exact template, right? The, mm. the academic paper is very clear. Here's the introduction. Here's the literature review. Here are the hypotheses. Here's the methodology. Here's the data analysis. Here's the conclusion. Now, what you fit in is different, but the template is set. Well, when you're writing your book, How to Save the West, or when I'm writing my books, I have a general idea, but a lot of it comes up organic. Yes, I've got an original outline, but mm. a lot of stuff, here are pages 172 to 179, I I didn't I never thought that I was going to write these originally and that yeah. came up organically. So so I think that there is a truly unique skill and that's why I think not a lot of people succeed in the trade book market. You really have to be a good storyteller and the fact that you've been able to clearly build an audience through your podcast suggests that you know how to speak to people outside the ivory tower. Did I answer your question? You absolutely did. Yeah. No, I um I think all the time about this thing that Abraham Lincoln said, you know, God must have loved the common people. He did make so many of them. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and uh, in the crisis of the regime section, I'm talking about what America is, what America is supposed to be. You know, there's been so much political hurly burly back and forth, fracas, whatever about populism, right? This is it a dirty word. Is it the salvation? Is it the future? Um, and Whatever that word may may or may not mean, um, I think that um, what America means, uh, maybe maybe above all, but certainly fundamentally, is that those people, like the guys that you actually meet when you walk out your door, um, 
who are, you know, like, like every one of us, like you and me, like everybody are, you know, flawed, have their blind spots, have their uh, prejudices, but also have just enormous resources and, and wellsprings of kind of, uh, I, I would say, um, resilience, uh, love, generosity, you know, there's, there's so much uh, of goodness in, in people. It, as they are, not in some kind of abstracted way that you might like them to be, not in our democracy, whatever that means, you know, in some some future utopia. Um, but here and now, the way the people on the tractor, the the cops, the soldiers that write to you, you know, those are the people that you have to speak to because you know they're the people God loves. They're the people that are that are here. And and I think like. You know, the American idea is that those people get to be free, that you don't actually get to erase their inner lives or wish them away um, because you have some perfect idea about how you're going to mold this beautiful theory or or what have you. Um, and I mean, not to kind of go off on a peroration based on what you what you've just said, but I think this is really urgent. I think that when when you talk about experts who are the kind of that's like the big bad word in, in certain sets, um, the problem with our expertise with modern expertise is not that it is that there, you know, there is such a thing as expertise. So that's not the, the problem. There's such a thing as knowing things and doing research. It's actually a great gift. Um, the problem is the disdain, just the, the pride, the arrogance, the disdain yeah. that says, like, because I have this knowledge, you don't get a say. Um, and if there's anything that we are, I think, trying to fight back against here as this as part of this intellectual project, it's that it's that people yeah. do get a say. In fact, they matter ultimately. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, which leads me, so this might be the only, I think we, I mentioned it offline, this might be the only place where we might slightly disagree. Yep. Because when you're saying, you know, there's so much goodness in people, so I'm I'm going to segue into God for a moment. So I'm I'm Jewish. I'm very, mm. very Jewish. Uh, I know, I think your dad was born Jewish, correct? And then he, he That's converted right. to Catholicism that he converted to, or which which branch of Christianity? It's a Anglican Christianity, which is just it's like a sliver away from Catholicism. Oh, okay, but yeah. fair enough. Uh, so you know, I come from a long history, religious history, you know, uh, intellectual history. I can be very, very Jewish without necessarily being very grounded in you know a belief in a higher creator and so on. So yeah. let me pitch uh, an idea, and then. I'm, I'm almost certain you'll disagree with it and let's see yep. where we can we can take it. So I was asked uh, many years ago to write, I think they had picked uh, uh, 100 non 100 famous non-believers to write a, a you know a one page thing as to uh, you know how they can find purpose and meaning without uh, you know centering it on God. And so I, I had written a section, and I actually quote part of it in, in my forthcoming uh, book, where I'm actually talking about the link between religiosity and happiness. And as 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 it might make you happy to know, there is a link between that the more religious you are, it, it's tough to be non-religious. It, it's a lot easier to be religious. It certainly offers us a lot of solace. Now, in my, in my view, because I think I'm truly, if I may say, even couch it in, in in religious terms i'm a pure soul i don't do good things because there is an accounting mechanism with some judge mm. some celestial i do things for no other reason than the purity of doing things i see divinity in my 
stupendous Belgian shepherds. I see divinity in my gorgeous wife and children. I see divinity in having discovered Spencer Clavin and had a great conversation with him. I see divinity. And a few days ago, I was with my wife at a cafe. We're very open people. We started talking to a guy who's doing his PhD in music at McGill. And mm. it took us off into tangents in our conversation where we were lost in the magic of the moment, just chatting with this guy. So there are many, many ways by which I can instantiate a, a, a feeling of purpose and meaning through having children and loving them, through creating uh, material that hopefully will be read by future generations. Hopefully in a hundred years, someone will be watching these two guys on the hmm. screen and saying, wow, what a cool conversation these guys had. So Amen. is it, can, can you at least agree, or maybe you won't, that there is a way for people to wake up and, and kind of rub their hands that day with existential glee mm. void of God? Or do you think it's always lesser than if I don't center it on God? Wow. Well, that's, I, I mean, th this is beautifully articulated, I think, as the way to talk about the disagreement between us, um, because you're actually touching upon a very important Aristotelian insight, not yes. just like, you know, this whole frustration, right? The, the, the Aristotle was here before us. At the, the distinction between an intrinsic and an extrinsic good would be maybe the, the simplest way to talk about this. And the idea that in order to that that you shouldn't do good just to get a heavenly reward, that's like doing work just to get money or or worse, you know, dating and marrying a girl just to get her money. You know, that there's some something kind of actually less than um, in that idea about the world. And I would actually agree with you about that. And I would say, in fact, yes, goods of the highest caliber, as Aristotle points out, are good in themselves. They are their own fulfillment in a certain way. Uh, another way of putting this is that their their formal and final cause are are the same. Um, and all of the things that you mentioned, I would agree, they have uh, an intrinsic goodness in them. Um, and in fact, I would even argue that many of the descriptions of heavenly bliss and hellish deprivation in the Bible are about the kind of, in, you can already see people experiencing them in the here and now. You don't have to wait until after death, although I believe they will be pushed to eternity after after death. Um, and so when I talk about heavenly reward, I'm actually talking about the exact same thing that, that you're talking about. What I'm saying is that that has an, a, an existence beyond the sort of perishable moment of, of the here and now. Yes. And that's what I'm arguing in the book is that actually a lot of people who believe what you believe already in some sense believe what I believe. Right. I, I think I'm giving a truer account of it by saying that it, it belongs in, in God's realm. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't disagree with much of this, but I would say that you're, you are talking about something, a, a final good, which if it has an ultimate uh, eternal existence must must be somewhere in the bosom of God. Right. Beautiful. All right. Uh, we we almost are out of time. Can you tell us? I, I know this book just came out, so you're busy yep. promoting and 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 supporting this book. Are there any other projects that you'd like to discuss and promote and use this platform to do so? Take it away. That's very generous of you to ask. Thank you. Um, well, since you say I'm I am promoting this book, so I will mention it's on Amazon. Um, you can also hear me read it on Audible if that's something that uh, people, I, I know a lot of people like that format, but um, you talked about Gateway to the Stoics. I'm I'm very pleased with how that volume came out, and I think people who are interested in this as a philosophy might really like to check that out. Um, I'm interested to know what, what you think of it as well, yes. uh, especially because there's some God stuff in there too. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then um, actually just following me on Twitter, at Spencer Clavin is the easiest way to find the right. work I'll be doing with Daily Wire and uh, all my essays and all that stuff. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, okay. Even though I don't know your dad personally, say hello to him. He has raised apparently a delightful son, so he's got much to be proud of. Uh, and by the way, uh, the the timber of your voice is identical <laughs> to your dad. I can't tell whether, I mean, other than seeing that you look much younger than your dad, I, if, if it were simply on audio, I wouldn't be able to tell that it's not him. I'm sure you've been told that a million times. It's it's quite it's it's quite arresting, actually. It's unbelievable. Oh, thank you. Well, it's an honor um, to hear that. It's the only family heirloom. Uh, uh, beside me, outside the frame, there is a picture of my grandfather, who was a radio announcer in New York for his entire career, and also had the exact same voice. Incredible. So it just passes down. Yeah. Well, you all have lovely voices. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye officially offline. Thank you so much, Spencer. Come back anytime you. you'd like. Oh, it was a joy. Thank you. That's great.